I seem to have caught the flu, so if I sound weird, it's because I'm feeling weird. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 228, Alfred and Ada, The Audacity of Nope. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Valerie, Matt, and Larissa for signing up already. Hey, Londoners, co-producer Z and I are going to be at the George Inn on Borough High Street in Southwark, London on January 21st, starting at about 3 p.m. We put a Facebook event together if you'd like to RSVP for it. It's free, and it's a chance for us to get to know you and for you to get to know us. So if you can, please come out and share a pint with us on Saturday the 21st at the George Inn. In spite of everything standing against them, Alfred and Athelnoth are bringing the war directly to Guthrum on a daily basis. And we know this thanks to Asser and the Chronicle, but both sources neglect to tell us how the rebel army was bringing the war to Guthrum. And the one time that I want more information on historic military tactics, I'm getting nothing. However, while our sources neglect tactics, they do let us know a key point about their tactical situation. Alfred and Athelnoth's numbers were few. Merely Alfred's hearthwarod and whatever forces that Athelnoth brought with him. And on the other side, Guthrum had vastly superior numbers. We suspect that he was facing some headwind because otherwise he would have held much more of Wessex, and Asser tells us that Guthrum had just forced the submission of the people of, quote, the region, end quote. And the use of the word region appears to have been specific and intended to indicate the western portion of Wessex, perhaps just Wiltshire. And that's the same region that was ruled over by Elderman Wolf Hera, the suspected turncoat. But we don't know what was happening in the eastern territories, like Kent. And as for the heartland of Wessex, Somerset, well, that was an open rebellion. So, while Guthrum did have more men than Alfred, he still was fighting quite the battle. And it appears that Guthrum's gambit when he attacked Chippenham just after Twelfth Night was to either kill Alfred or force him to abdicate like Halfdan had done with Burgred. But he failed. And now, he had to solidify his hold on the kingdom region by region. Wiltshire was already his, and Somerset was probably the next in line, but thanks to Elderman Athelnoth's actions, that region had become a battlefield. By failing to capture Alfred, Guthrum's West Saxon campaign had turned into a quagmire. Guthrum was like a dog who caught the car he was chasing, and now he needed to move quickly, lest he get run over. He needed to defeat Athelnoth, and he needed Alfred to abdicate or die. Guthrum needed this war to be over, and quickly, before anyone else started getting ideas. Now, when Guthrum started his invasion of Wessex, he had a key tool in his possession. But despite his triumph, by leaving Alfred alive, he lost that tool. The famous French revolutionary Georges-Jacques Danton said that in order to overturn the order of things, quote, Il nous fout de l'outasse. Et encore de l'outas, 
est toujours de l'audace, end quote, which translated into English says, we need audacity, more audacity, and always audacity. And Guthrum had audacity. His attack on Chippenham was the height of it. That's why Alfred either never saw it coming or couldn't stop it even if he had. But now, Guthrum couldn't be audacious anymore. He had a new kingdom to rule, a new kingdom to lose should the wrong person come knocking. And already there were rumblings of Alfred's presence in the marshes, probably songs being sung. And every time his men were sent out to find him, they came back empty-handed, which made Guthrum look weak. Alfred was already proving that he could be just as audacious as the pagans. And his men already had the necessary rebel mindset. And the surrounding countryside was already predisposed to Alfred, thanks to the presence of Athelnoth and the viciousness of Guthrum. Now, the rebel army just needed that first open attack. That first fortuitous victory that would allow them to build a momentum of their own. So that's the tactical situation. And because we know it, we can reconstruct a likely set of tactics. Even though the Anglo-Saxon record doesn't give us details, we're fortunate that we have other better recorded guerrilla fights. So we can make some educated guesses as to what Alfred's forces might have been up to and how they might have gone about it. Having hidden in the wilds, made a little contact with potentially friendly supporters, and spread rumors, Alfred's army was now ready to bring the fight to Guthrum for real. This period would have been crucial, because as the small side of asymmetrical war, Alfred couldn't afford to lose any fights. And he certainly couldn't afford to lose the first one. Victory in the field was a necessary component for the war that he was fighting. You see, any combat that he was engaging in would be an extension of his war for the mind. And so if he suffered any defeats, it would damage the morale of his army and would also hamper his recruitment prospects. And don't forget, gaining more warriors was a major goal for his war at this point. Consequently, he needed to fight only when he was sure of victory. And ideally, he needed to do it when that victory would be visible. That's a tall order. But he had something that would help him fill that order. Right from the beginning, the element of surprise would have been Alfred's biggest ally. By having surprise on his side, and by choosing the time and manner of engagement, Alfred and his forces could compensate for their lack of numbers. They knew that they didn't have the numbers for a direct field battle. And so, by moving around secretly, they would deny Guthrum that opportunity. They would stay hidden and only strike when they decided the time was right. And that meant that the rebels of the marshes would need to move in groups that were large enough to put up a fight when necessary, but also small enough to be able to move around without being noticed. This same pressure existed in more modern guerrilla fights, and oftentimes we would see that they break down into units of about 10 to 15 fighters. That would be enough to do some damage, but also not enough to be noticed by a chatty peasant. So that might have been what Alfred and his forces decided to do. And based on that, we can guess that there were probably multiple columns of fighters active throughout Somerset. And that, in turn, would have enabled them to engage in the daily attacks that we're told about. And let's talk about those attacks. Stalking Guthrum's army and attacking isolated pockets of that force would be advantageous, since it would weaken his army and it would also sow fear throughout it. 
Any opportunity to do that should be jumped at. But the truth is that attacking Guthrum's army, even if it was just a small detachment, would have been a really high-risk endeavor. 10 to 15 fighters could quickly overwhelm a handful of warriors if they were taken by surprise. But if those same warriors were prepared, well, suddenly the fight grew a lot more dangerous. And while 10 to 15 warriors could probably still defeat a unit of 5 warriors, there's no guarantee that they'd all make it out alive and uninjured. And Alfred needed everybody to survive. He didn't have men to spare. So they would need to find ways to tip the scales in their favor. Consequently, Alfred and his warriors likely relied on night assaults on isolated detachments, and probably also on ambushes. Furthermore, they probably would have fled the field the moment that any serious resistance was being offered. If things started to look like they were turning against them, they'd need to leg it. And like we talked about earlier, this would have run counter to their cultural training, but it was necessary. And it also highlights another key quality of a rebel fighter that we've learned from history. Cardio. Rebels are runners. Alfred's warbands would only be as fast as their slowest member. The warriors who went out on these missions would have had to have been able to run fast, even after becoming exhausted in battle, because they all needed to escape. Even if one of their number was captured, then Guthrum would be able to discover where Alfred and his army was hiding. So they had to be able to run fast even after an attack. Something else to consider is that when the Chronicle talks about Alfred and Athelnoth engaging with Guthrum on a daily basis, it's probably not talking just about fighting. Nor do many scholars think that these missions would have been directed solely at Guthrum's forces. I mean, think it through. Alfred and his army were living in a swamp, and while St. Cuthbert apparently did them a solid by giving them three boatloads of fish, they still needed food and provisions. They needed equipment. They needed stuff to be able to build somewhere dry to sleep. Have you thought about that? They're living in a swamp, and hammocks were invented in the Americas, so they were probably sleeping on the ground. And I imagine that finding a way to solve that problem was right towards the top of the list of priorities, since sickness would probably follow if they didn't. So, Alfred and his army needed stuff. Stuff that they almost certainly didn't have, but it was stuff that Guthrum and his forces did have. By seizing supplies from his enemies, Alfred would be able to provide for his people, expose the weakness of Guthrum, and, if he wanted to, he would be able to give his surpluses to the locals and hopefully win their support. Furthermore, he could target any West Saxons who allied with Guthrum. By doing that, he would be able to demonstrate to his subjects that he was still king of these lands, and that he still had the power to punish those who failed to uphold their oaths. So, I imagine that the bulk of these daily attacks probably involved raids. They were out there stealing food, stealing weapons, stealing armor, stealing horses, stealing anything that wasn't nailed down and I suspect that they would have been specifically targeting Guthrum and anybody who allied with him, since that would have been most effective at his ultimate goal, which was undermining Guthrum while elevating himself. And, you know, if the Eldermen of Wiltshire abandoned Alfred in his time of need, and then suddenly his horses were stolen in the night and his manor was set on fire, it wouldn't take long for people to figure out why. 
This would have been a practical way to resupply while also sending a clear message to his subjects. Now, the frequency of these attacks also hides something that Alfred and his men would have probably been all too aware of. Boredom. When you think of this period, it's understandable if you compress it into an action montage. But the truth of it is that life for one of Alfred's rebels would have been about 99% hiking and waiting, and only 1% action. You know how The Fellowship of the Ring was pretty much a movie about a really big hike? Well, that would have been the case for every one of these bands that were sent out. They had a mission, and it was probably an exciting mission. But first, they needed to walk. Then walk some more. And then, there would be more walking. And once they got to the place that they were walking to, then they need to wait. And that's because, as we've been talking about, Alfred's forces needed to win every engagement. So that meant they couldn't be reckless. They would need to find somewhere to hide and just watch. For ages. And even if they were sure that what they were looking at was a good target, they would probably still need to wait for nightfall, or for when they had a good position against the Danes. It would have been incredibly boring. It also would have been time-consuming. And as they waited, they would have gotten hungry and tired. It's not like they could take a break and hit a restaurant or a hotel. If it was raining, they would have been out in the middle of it. And unfortunately, relying on local support when out on a mission wouldn't have been an option. Any sort of contact with the locals would have had to have been very guarded and careful. Because even friendly locals could be made to betray Alfred's forces under enough pressure. And Guthrum was probably quite comfortable with applying that amount of pressure and more. So, regular friendly local hideouts would have run the risk of being traps. Talking too much with locals or even trading with them ran the risk of giving away your position. Any contact with the locals when you were out on a mission would have been really risky. So, it was probably avoided or very carefully carried out. Consequently, when these rebels were out on a mission, if they wanted food, weather protection, weaponry, or anything else, they would need to bring it with them. Alfred's army would have been living like turtles. They would have carried their homes on their backs. And too much stuff being carried with them would have slowed them down. So they likely would have packed light, especially for raiding missions, where they would need to be able to carry whatever they stole back to camp. But that also meant that they would have been living hard. As they hiked, as they waited, they would have been going without many of the things that they'd grown accustomed to. They were going hungry. They were sleeping in the mud. They were suffering. And these weren't peasants who might be accustomed to hard living. They were Alfred's Hearthwarod and Athelnoth and his Werod. So these were noblemen. I mean, sure, they were fighters, but they were also members of court who were used to being feasted in the great halls of the kingdom. And now, they were living like dogs. Worse than dogs. At least dogs had a hearth fire. It would have been tough, but what they were doing was also devastatingly effective. The audacity of these attacks were causing no end of problems for Guthrum. Allies were likely becoming increasingly hard to find as word of the rebel king's attacks spread among the locals. Guthrum's warriors were probably also growing discontent. These were trained fighters, 
But Alfred was refusing to give them a fight, and instead, he attacked them in secret. I imagine that, as the attacks went on, the Danes began to live under a cloud of fear, always wondering which of their new West Saxon subjects were secretly rebels, waiting to strike once the sun set. So Guthrum needed to put an end to this as fast as possible. But Alfred had chosen his defensive ground well. Finding him in the swamps would be difficult. And there were all manner of ways that going into those swamps could end really badly for the Scandinavian forces. It would be far better if Alfred could somehow be drawn out, or at least forced out, of whatever hole he was hiding in. So for Guthrum, it was time for Eoncor de Ludas. And into this scene entered a son of Ragnar, a hero of the Danes who already made a name for himself in Britain. Ubba, brother of Ivor the Boneless and King Halfdan, had a crew of 800 fighters and a personal guard of 40 chosen warriors. They were battle-hardened, ruthless, and, as they were currently occupying Devid, which was Asser's homeland, they were a mere stone's throw away from Alfred's base of operations. And so, not long after hostilities between Guthrum and Alfred had fully bloomed, Ubba ordered his men to load their arms, board their 23 ships, and sail up the Bristol Channel. They were headed for Wessex. Precisely what led Ubba to get involved isn't known. It's a subject of much debate, and theories tend to come down into two camps. The first is that this was raw opportunism. Wessex was in chaos, their king was ousted from power, Guthrum probably looked like he bit off more than he could chew, and was having a hard time maintaining his grip on the territory. And all of that made Wessex a ripe target for an enterprising Viking war leader. And an enterprising Viking war leader was exactly what Ubba was. But on the other hand, Ubba could have sailed anywhere in Wessex. Based on Asser's account, it seems that Guthrum really only had effective hold on one slice of Wessex, and there were plenty of targets that Ubba could have struck if he was looking to raid or conquer. And many of those targets were quite wealthy. London, Canterbury, there were a variety of places he could strike. And yet here he was, sailing up the Bristol Channel, and headed for Devon. Why? Well, that leads us to the other theory that this was part of a coordinated attack, and that Guthrum had reached out to Ubba for support. I find this highly plausible. Despite his early gains, it was becoming clear that Guthrum was in over his head. Alfred couldn't be found, his legend was growing, acts of violence and sabotage were becoming all too common, and now rebel eldermen were seeking him out and supporting his cause. But... If Alfred could be forced out of his lair, if he could be drawn into direct combat, and if his avenue of retreat could be cut off, well, this war might finally end. And the best way to do that would be to have a large allied force attack Alfred from the west and drive him out of the marshes. Much like how hunters use dogs to drive foxes from their dens, if Guthrum could use Ubba's men to roust Alfred... This might be over in a matter of days. And consequently, I, along with many scholars, suspect that's exactly what led Ubba to sail up the Bristol Channel and land in Devon. If Devon could be seized, 
then Ubba would have a direct route into the western reaches of Somerset, while Guthrum could patrol the eastern edges, and that would leave Alfred with nowhere to run. So it was that in the early months of 878, Ubba and his 23 ships struck the northern coast of Devon. And normally, a winter attack by sea would probably result in total victory. Normally, the speed and surprise of such an attack would take the West Saxons unaware. Normally, this would be a walk in the park. But 878 wasn't a normal year. Their king had been recently deposed. Guthrum was ravaging Somerset. There were rumors of Alfred leading a resistance force. There was nothing normal about it. And consequently, the forces of Devon and their elderman, a man named Oda, were on a war footing. They'd learned the hard way that these Danes didn't respect holy days or campaigning seasons, and so they were ready for the unexpected. And that readiness was likely why we even know Ada's name. But readiness alone wouldn't defeat an army like this. Ship after ship was unloading. The coast of Devon was an endless sea of round shields, axes, and swords, as 800 Vikingers, led by 40 elite warriors and a son of Ragnar, took possession of the beach. And flying above the horde of pagans was a great banner that was said to have been woven by the daughters of Ragnar Lothrock. It was called Raven, and it held the power of prophecy. If it fluttered before battle, your victory was assured. I don't know if the banner fluttered as the Danes disembarked, but I do know that as the West Saxons saw this force, Ada and his men knew they only had one choice. Retreat. Standing their ground and fighting on the battlefield of Ubba's choosing would only result in their deaths. And so they ran. They ran straight for a hill along the coast. It was called Kinwit. Now it's called Countess Bray Hill. And the path leading to that hill was steep, and there were only a few avenues of approach. It wasn't a perfect defense, but it would have to do. And so the forces of Devonshire hid behind some roughly hewn earthen ramparts that augmented the natural defenses of the hill, and they hoped that that would be enough to give them the advantage against the inevitable Danish assault. The trouble, though, was that the Danes had no interest in attacking their crappy little hill. And why would they? The West Saxons had bottled themselves up on a scrubby patch of land with no water and little to eat other than weeds. The Danes didn't need to fight. All they needed to do was hang out and wait for them to surrender or die of thirst. So, Ubba and his men kicked their feet up, maybe played some neftaffle, and chuckled about how stupid and cowardly these West Saxons were. You can hand a spear to a West Saxon farmer, but you still had a West Saxon farmer holding that spear. And Ubba's disinterest in assaulting the hill was certainly noticed by Elderman Ada of Devon. And so was their issue with their supplies. It really doesn't take long for someone to die of thirst. And even if the West Saxons got lucky with some rain, dying of hunger wouldn't be all that much better. They were in a tough spot. But Ada had an advantage. The winds within Wessex were shifting. The kingdom wasn't the same one that it had been in months before. And I'm not just speaking in terms of politics. Culturally, things within Wessex were changing. 
Stories would have been filtering in of Alfred's forces and their struggle. And as these reports came in, Ada and others would have realized one key fact. Alfred had been adopting the battle tactics of the Danes. He was out there conducting ambushes and raids. And it was working. God wasn't punishing him for it. In fact, if these stories were to be believed, God was rewarding Alfred by putting the pagans on the defensive for the first time in recent memory. Now, Otto was an elderman. This was unlikely to have been his first battle. He may have been present for the earlier fights against Halfdan and Guthrum, and if he wasn't, he at least would have heard of them. He would have known how devastating a surprise attack could be. And he probably also knew that a surprise attack would be the last thing that Ubba would be expecting. The West Saxons didn't engage in surprise attacks. They stood proudly in the sight of God and men and fought honorably. But this was a new Wessex. And he needed to get off this hill. So in the dark of night, Ada organized his men as quietly as possible. Everyone was to fully arm and wait for his order. And then they watched the Vikinger camp. They waited for Ubba and his men to go to sleep. They watched and waited until only the guards were left awake. And then the West Saxons struck. They rushed from their camp and charged headlong into the Danish encampment, taking them completely by surprise. Ubba and his men didn't know what hit them. The Saxons of Devon attacked with such ferocity that were told that the full Viking host was immediately overwhelmed and I suspect that they scarcely had time to even put on clothes or armor. The attack of Elderman Otta of Devon was absolutely devastating, and it was also ruthless. We're told that only a few escaped the fray by fleeing to their ships. And 800 warriors, as well as 40 of the elite guard, and Ubba himself, the famed son of Ragnar Lothbrok, fell on the shores of Devon that morning. The Scandinavian pincer attack had been broken. Guthrum was once again denied his easy victory. And now, another western territory was in open rebellion against his rule. But Alfred didn't retreat to Devon after this victory. He didn't pull back and operate from a stronghold in the far west, despite the likely support that he'd find there. No, he stayed in Somerset. He stayed close to the heartland of his kingdom. And this, too, was tactical. His continued presence in Somerset humiliated Guthrum and telegraphed how confident he was in his eventual victory. It was a powerful recruitment tool, but it also enforced fealty because it let all of Wessex know that Alfred was still their rightful king. He hadn't abdicated his crown, and through his raids and ambushes, he was showing everyone what happened to those who failed to honor their obligations to him and Guthrum was showing that he could do little to stop it. After every victory, after every skirmish, one name would have been excitedly whispered around the hearth fires of Wessex. And it wasn't Guthrum. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And we have a whole bunch of other communities that you can find by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Now I'm 
going to take some more DayQuil and take a nap. <laughs>